My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week we tell a story. In 2014, a young Jordanian Air Force pilot was captured and burned to death by terrorists after his fighter aircraft crashed near Raqqa, Syria. During a combat sortie aimed at destroying an arsenal and other targets. In the carefully staged and filmed execution, the airman was caged, covered with gasoline, and set afire. Now, the terrorists that did this hoped that they would take down an entire country and a thought, but instead enraged the entire world. So tonight, Sam Katz is a New York-based, New York Times best-selling author, magazine editor, and special feature correspondent. You know him before. He's written 30 books and articles, and he's been in Vanity Fair, Esquire, and GQ, and he's also been on this show. And tonight, he's here to talk about his book, No Shadows in the Desert, Murder, Vengeance, and Espionage in the War Against ISIS. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're here. Um, this book, like I told you when we were talking, there's a ton of information in it. And I think that a lot of the stuff that happened in this is stuff that people don't really know about. Um, they, they know about the war in a, in a general sense of the word, and they know things that happened, but they, I don't think they knew the inner workings. And a couple of things that I wanted to start off with real quick is you talk about Al-Qaeda in it, you talk about ISIS, you talk about a couple different things. I'd, I'd like to break down for the people that are listening the subtle nuances between Al-Qaeda, between ISIS, the different ferocity in which they fought with in kind of the countries that they tried to overtake and just the difference in their terrorist actions against another, as crazy as that may sound. So if we can, can we first just talk about those kind of things to kind of set up a kind of basis for everyone to understand? Well, on the very big picture, Al-Qaeda emerged out of many um, fundamentalist um, groups, um, primarily out of Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia, that found a common cause, a mission. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, um, shortly after the um, Soviet invasion, President Carter um, went on TV and in a conference, a press conference said, this was a war against Islam and it was a jihad. And that rang bells among many people around the world that they need to flock to Afghanistan and join a struggle against the Soviet Union. It was a struggle that ultimately we funded. It attracted um, many individuals who were languishing in Middle Eastern prisons and it morphed um, with the help of Mr. Bin Laden into what the world became, the world began to know as Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda um, began slowly as a um, Islamic terrorist group that wanted to make the West pay for the U.S. and the coalition stationing forces in Saudi Arabia during Gulf War One. It it was well financed by individuals and governments in the Gulf. It grew. It had um, 
satellite offices and volunteers around the West and in emigrate communities around the world. And uh, it's launched the uh, most terrific terrorist attack in global history on 9-11. That, in turn, sparked uh, many things around the Middle East, the invasion of Afghanistan, and ultimately Gulf War II. So when we want to think about Al-Qaeda and ISIS, I would always make the analogy, um, think of a street gang, and think of that same street gang um, after 10 years in the worst prison in America. And what you what emerged is a hardened, fanatical, incredibly ruthless and capable terrorist foe. And when Al Qaeda in Iraq was created, um, when let me backtrack for a second, the U.S. made one terrible error in in Iraq, in that one of the first moves that it made after it captured Baghdad and seized most of the country was that it decided to destroy the entire civil service infrastructure, meaning individuals that had been sanitation workers and um, people who worked for the power grid, policemen, even intelligence officers um, who were working um, for the government and had pensions and could sur uh, survive and provide for their families, lost everything overnight. And many of these individuals fought back. And many of them who were able to have been motivated by fundamentalist Islam fought back um, in an organized cells, especially once they were um, had, the, had the chance to rearm, to arm themselves and, um, and organize them, themselves into well, well um, compartmentalized cells. Um, they became what was the first resistance to, to the U.S. invasion and the Allies. And then after many of these individuals were in prison for a long time, they became more radical, more capable. They got to share all of their tradecraft with one another. And the U.S. abandoned Iraq in 2011. They became um, the very metastasized version of Al-Qaeda and what we now know as ISIS. So let me ask you, whenever you talk about that they <clears throat> they fired pretty much everybody, everybody that was in civil service, down to sanitation workers, everyone, were those guys already, I don't want to say radicalized, but were they already on the way, and is that why that happened? Or can we explain kind of the background of why that actually happened? Because when you look at it as, as a whole and you see that they all were taken away from their jobs, pensions were taken away, when you put it to the that they were already maybe radicalized or or on that road there, you can sort of understand it, um, but then you you turn it into an entirely different thing. So can can you explain kind of the thinking behind doing that? Iraq pre-invasion wasn't a fundamentalist state by any stretch of the imagination. It was a state that was more or less split um, between the Shiites and the Sunnis. And it was tribal. It was um, very particular to one's um, village, the area where they were born. And Saddam Hussein's brutal secret police um, was very wary of the um, fundamentalists among his 
his um, his country and the prisons were full of them. They weren't the source of the um, of the opposition. They, as a result of the U.S. invasion, as a result of the loss of the civil service, as a result of miscalculation on on the part of the U.S. and the coalition, um, it gave an excuse for there to be an Islamic opposition. It became another battleground. Now, some could say, in hindsight, that um, President Bush wanted to fight them there as opposed to here. You know, there are all sorts of rationale behind that. In hindsight, is always twenty twenty, so it's not a blame game or anything like that. It's just a statement of what happened. Um, there were Baathists from the Baath Party, where Saddam came from, who opposed the U.S. Um, presence with um, military and terrorist attacks. There were Shiite groups that opposed the U.S. presence, and there were um, individuals and groups that migrated um, toward a fundamentalist way of mobilizing themselves. There was a Jordanian, um, Mr. Zarqawi, who created a satellite branch. If you want to look at um, Al-Qaeda as a corporation, as, as the Walmart headquarters, so to speak, and all the little stores being their satellite offices, Musa Abu Zarqawi created um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And that became a call to arms for fundamentalists from across the region and even across the world to come and fight the U.S. in a new location. And what happened there because of the makeup of Iraq, because of the target-rich environment of U.S. forces and U.S. investment and the promise of doing something that could resemble a pro-Western nation one day, um, the place became a bloodbath. And the individuals that migrated toward that group who ended up incarcerated um, ultimately ended up as being the core, the cadre of what would um, the world would know as ISIS. So when we talk about Al-Qaeda and ISIS, ISIS was kind of the graduated form of Al-Qaeda. And I think that they, of course, the terror attacks with Al-Qaeda and everything like that, but I think ISIS took it to a whole new level, especially in this book. You you talk about a bunch of times where they actually had a, an entire section that was just there to make the propaganda videos, that was just there to kind of push this um, storyline that they were there to liberate, that they were there to help, and that, that they needed to push all of these people out of there. And if you didn't help them push out of there, there were consequences for that too. So it almost seems that even though those terror attacks happened with Al-Qaeda, that they got even more advanced with ISIS. They started taking more risks. They started, and and what I mean by risk is they they started trying to take entire cities and, and they actually were very um, uh, successful in that in a couple of things. Why do you think that they go from Afghanistan to Iraq. Was it just ripe for the picking there, you think? Well, Al-Qaeda was almost everywhere. Um, not Afghanistan was their base, but they were in Hamburg. They were in Cairo. They were in Saudi Arabia. They were all over. They were here. You know, let's not forget that um, 
1993 bombing of the World Trade Center was um, was one of the first um, attacks that could be linked to Al Qaeda. Ramzi Yusuf, the mastermind behind that um, attack, was um, one of the very first of Bin Laden's operatives, who um, was um, way ahead of his time in terms of catastrophic terrorist attacks that he wanted to to perpetrate. You know, think of 9-11 and think of the 1993 bombing just um, from the New York office, so to speak. Um, they wanted to topple one building onto another and kill more people than were killed on 9-11. Um, his calculations were off. Um, and, you know, um, Rams Yusuf being the um, a relative of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, um, the mastermind of 9-11. It just shows how this progressed. And the same progression you could link to ISIS. The, the graduates of the Al-Qaeda in Iraq Academy, the very hardcore individuals that would end up um, in detention in Iraq and, and, and really um, endure um, the conditions where they were huddled together and got to... Um, got to hone their skills and hone their knowledge and radicalize um, um, fundamentally even even more um, were were able to create a to learn the lessons why they failed the first time now when you take the how the world advanced from 2003 2004 2005 to 2011 in terms of social media in terms of in the West and in many parts of the world, people having um, being burnt out when it came to acts of um, of standing up to this global terrorist threat. Ramzi Youssef, who was an emissary who came from from Pakistan, was really the first Al Qaeda um, uh, operations officer trying to to spread the, um, the power of Al-Qaeda, the message, the terrorist offensive to the United States. And he had a cell that operated in New York. Um, Al-Qaeda was a global endeavor. Um, it, it wasn't just limited to, to Pakistan or Afghanistan. It was um, by all means an, an international army um, that because individuals had trained in Afghanistan for months and had gone back to their emigrate communities. Um, he had emissaries all over the world. It was part, part of what ISIS would later manipulate um, with its operatives um, flocking from all over the world to come fight in Iraq and Syria. Um, and when we think of history, and we forget history, we think of you know, 20 plus years have now passed since 9-11, um, well, the 1993 plot was designed to topple one tower into the other. And on an afternoon in February 1993, kill 30, 40, 50,000 people. We think of the horror of 9-11. It could have been horribly worse um, almost a decade earlier. So we shouldn't think of this as just isolated to Iraq or Afghanistan. This was a global movement. And when we look at in the post 9-11 world and the post-invasion of Iraq world, 
and we look how terrorist armies operated, um, they had a tool that was readily available and in many cases inexpensive in mobile phones. Now, back then, they were the flip phones and and um, none of the um, razzle-dazzle that you have now with um, the iPhones and the Androids. But even the Nokias that were really prominent in the area had cameras and sophisticated recording capabilities. And if you were a, a an operative, if you were a teenager, if you were an old man and you had a cell phone, you could do many things. You could take pictures of enemy movement. You could monitor attacks. You could you could um, you could take videos of individuals before they go and blow themselves up. And each of those phones had SIM cards. You could take a SIM card out, put it into a computer at an internet cafe before everybody had their 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 laptops and the phones became more powerful. And you could email it to a thousand people. And they could email it to 10,000 people. And all of a sudden, the beheading of somebody is, is something that individuals could see um, as a propaganda tool to radicalize individuals. So take that whole reality, that new weapon in the arsenal of terror, and move it up to 2011, 2012, 2014, and you now have um, the advent of Facebook and Twitter Instagram and PlayStation, where individuals can communicate beyond the reach or beyond even the notice of law enforcement. And now what morphed out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Iraq, became a global movement that could recruit individuals. Well, a lot of the individuals that ended up in Iraq, the first go around, came from countries that had a, a savvy media presence. Indeed, in the Middle East, Advertising is very advanced and very slick, just as slick, if not more, than in the West. So these individuals had talent, creative talent, production talent, and they could buy gear that could be used to produce very high-end media creations, some that would rival the best that Madison Avenue or Hollywood create. And that only went to increase recruitment and the, and the more you recruited the more you had to adhere to the ideology becoming even crazier because you recruited a wider swath of people and many of those were insane and many of those would come to the middle east and to the battle space because they were promised a weapon they were promised prominence they were promised a woman they were promised this whole region that was now because the Arab Spring had started and there was a civil war in Syria where ethnic um, scores, some a thousand years old, could be settled. And instead of just killing your enemy, you could also um, you know, take his daughters and his wives. Well, and I think in, an even step further than that, not only kill your enemy, but you could... I guess the word would be embarrass them worldwide or bring shame to them worldwide by the things that you did. And that was very much evident in some of the stuff that was even brought up in this book that they have done. Um, the last thing that we need to talk about before we get into the story so that people understand is there was an active coalition going on that was uh, targeting ISIS uh, and targeting terrorist cells. 
numerous countries were a part of it. Everyone seemed to be doing their part. One thing that I would like to point out is you, you talk about it in the book that, that the United States uh, with the Obama administration might have missed um, some of the signs that were coming out of the Middle East. Um, and like when Obama said that he's, it, it, there's going to be, a, I think, a red line. And if you cross over that, well, they crossed over that. And we really didn't do that much about it. With that coalition, what was the thing that, that one, kept that going, and two, gave it its kind of focus on what they were going to do? Because you're talking about numerous different heads of state, numerous different ideologies. What kind of kept them focused on what they were going to do? Well, the convenience of having a red line is that you can just clean it up and move it someplace else. Um but but let me ask you before we go into that, that that's dangerous, and and it kind of bit us in the ass on this one. Of course, it's dangerous. Um, the um, without sounding too critical, or too condescending, or too all-knowing, because who the hell knows? Things move quickly. Um, things move sometimes because of other pieces of the puzzle not fitting properly. I think President Obama wanted in his paragraph of history to be a president who was not engaged in a war in the Middle East. Okay. And I think that Obama, um, from the actions in Afghanistan, um, was very fond of using drones and unmanned aerial vehicles to keep um, boots on the ground from engaging um, wide scale and having something escalate. And the problem with wars once they start, um, 2003 um, in Iraq being one of them, is that sometimes they don't end up the way you want them to end up. And sometimes the exit strategy kind of is transferred from administration to administration. And what one administration sees as its way out um, doesn't work for the next. And sometimes things linger and people don't assess the sentiment on the ground and they don't understand the capability because sometimes they're just damn near exhausted. And sometimes looking at the world from, as John le Carré, the, the, the great spy novelist said, looking at the world from a desk is the most dangerous thing that can happen. And I don't think anyone predicted when I say anyone, anyone, anywhere in the region predicted the ferocity uh, of ISIS and how fast they would emerge. And it was in most cases because nobody really relayed the proper intelligence of how fragile Iraq was and how the policy of throwing money at a problem um, just wasn't working. So the Iraqis were... Um, the country that we know now today of Iraq is built on ethnic and racial and religious lines and um, not always the most capable individuals who have the national interest at heart are the people in charge. And people who were Shiites were incredibly cruel to individuals who were Sunni and they only made the, um, the problem worse by making half of the population 
incredibly anger and angry and bitter and um, and they were cruel beyond words so what this red line um, that existed what, what's made the coalition come to be against Isis was the fact that almost overnight this new group of men in black with black flags and Toyota pickups um, took over Mosul one of the biggest cities in Iraq and one of the um, most important cities because it was in the middle of its oil-rich country and they moved on to Syria and Syria had fractured in civil war and little by little with the land that they were capturing they were threatening the core of US allies in the region they were threatening Jordan they were threatening the Gulf they had professed and advertised aspirations to go from the Persian Gulf all the way to the Atlantic Ocean and no one knew how fast the Arab Spring would turn into an ISIS Spring and it caused enormous alarm it was not just a political alarm it was an alarm of survival and many of the governments our allies or traditional allies in the Middle East when when all this springs up you talk about that they realized that was a problem that you really couldn't throw money at and you mentioned that a couple times in the book but we do we, we do a absolutely the the question to it is though what what they came up with was the uh the um the jordanian intelligence worked in a almost human intelligence completely it wasn't giving them money it wasn't promising them anything it was knowing how to speak to the person uh knowing the dialect knowing the customs and all those different things and they found that that was the way to start moving against isis would you would you agree with that uh, I, I think that's um summarizing it a bit too much okay the um the jordanians were one of the first nations to join the coalition in 2014 against isis there was a big NATO summit in the UK. The Jordanians were invited. They were one of the first nations to pledge full-fledged military support. Countries like Jordan um, have intelligence services that for forever um, were designed to protect the regime and to protect their interests from outside threats and jordan's gid the general intelligence department was one of the better ones in the region and because the technology wasn't the same technology that maybe existed in israel or in the west wasn't readily available to them or wasn't applicable to the threat environment that they existed in they focused and, and specialized in human intelligence and when you are in one of the countries in the Middle East and you have a tribal culture that's impregnable, impregnable to outsiders and that relies on, um, on a human touch and family bonds and interrelations inter and, and transactions that exist between tribes in a very traditional way, um, the Jordanian GID was ideally suited for this campaign, especially in Iraq, 
because Iraq and Jordan were created on artificial lines drawn by the British and the French at the end of the First World War. And tribes that existed on the Jordanian end of that artificial line also existed. Um, an extension of that existed on the Iraqi. So they had the natural connection. They had the, they had the blood ties. And blood is much thicker than anything else on the other side of the, of the equation. So they had people that could be relied upon. And electronic intelligence, signal intelligence has to be interpreted. But human intelligence that's trustworthy is invaluable. And that's where the Jordanians excelled. And with that human intelligence, though, they're approaching it in a manner of, like you said, signal intelligence, electronic intelligence, that all has to be broken down. And you have to have someone that is um, trustworthy, that's giving you good information. At, at times, they were finding double and triple agents that were giving information and things like that. With the weeding out of the bad information into the good, they got very good at it very quickly, I think, uh, progressing through the book by giving it to the CIA, giving it to other intelligence agents, MI6, MI5. Um, they became almost the uh, the go-to, if not the go-to, in that area of the world. And, and I mean by countries that were very powerful, very wealthy, could, as you said, throw money at problems. They started going to these guys for their information. Well, A, they were on the front lines. Um, the Iraq and Jordan share a long border. Um, Jordan is a very, very um, key component to um, Western um, strategies in the Middle East. Um, it borders Israel, so it has larger, um, larger importance when it comes to um, the geopolitical um, strategic makeup of this world. The, um, its frontline status and the fact that it knew how to locate assets on the ground. And because the assets, the tribes, um, operated on a currency where honor was more valuable than a container full of cash. The information that they provided, the insight that they provided, was beyond value. And only the Jordanians could provide that information, especially along the front lines with Syria, which Jordan also shared a border with. So the ability the access and the need created a perfect storm that benefited the West. You know, it should also be remembered that um, hundreds of thousands of Syrian and Iraqi refugees um, ended up in Jordan in refugee camps when the fighting started. So all, every one of those had people back in the old country. Um, and they were connected on cell phone. I mean, they still communicated. It wasn't, it wasn't like they had to communicate via the Red Cross or the Red Crescent or whatever. They were able to communicate real time in what was going down in Raqqa, in Aleppo, in Mosul. And 
having your finger on that wealth of, of knowledge um, in camps that were in country, in areas that you can um, entice individuals for their assistance and support. Um, the, the U.S., the CIA, um, the DIA, and, and the NSA, and MI6, and everyone, they could offer sometimes cash, or they could offer um, little bits here. But these individuals didn't want to leave the Middle East. They well, knew that they had to stay. Right, and that was a big thing, was they were offering them asylum, or they were offering them and their families Work. trans... Right. Life. Right. Now... When you mentioned that, all of the refugees coming across, that was actually why King Abdullah was here in the United States whenever the video hit the Internet um, in the story that we're going to talk about. He was here to actually go from, I think we were giving them $600 million a year. He wanted to bump it up to a billion dollars a year in funding, in um, uh, assets that, that they'll give them to keep the military going, to keep the strikes going, and to kind of offset the cost of all of those refugees. Was there a reason why we decided to go from that? That's a huge jump from $600 million to a billion dollars a year. That's a gigantic jump. Was the information and were they worth that much to us? Because I don't think people understand if they were that important to us, why they were that important to us. Well, um, Jordan is, uh, if you think of um, real estate being a, um, you know, the, the most value, where you are in real estate is, is the most valuable um, element in engaging price. Jordan borders Israel, borders Syria, borders Iraq and Saudi Arabia. It is a, um, a nation that has very few natural resources. Um, its most, um, its greatest export is um, educated individuals and talent. Um, it's a pro-Western country. It's a country that um, has a very strong British backbone from the times of the mandate. Um, they are a strong U.S. ally. They were one of the first country, Arab countries to make peace with Israel. Um, having Jordan is also a country with an enormously large Palestinian population. Keeping Jordan stable to keep um, the Arab-Israeli conflict stable to keeping um, everything else in the periphery stable is of valuable importance. The Jordanian military trains with the U.S. Um, Jordan um, was the first Arab state that contributed combat units to the war in Afghanistan. Um, there's, I, I don't know how you gauge foreign aid, but when the war um, against ISIS commenced, the Jordanians were doing so with not the front frontline weaponry, guidance bombs, etc., that the other countries were ahead. And King Abdullah had come to the U.S. saying, we're on the front lines, we're mounting sorties, we're doing everything we can, but we want to be more effective and we want to do more. We're, we've also absorbed um, an enormous amount of refugees that need to be housed and fed and cared for. Um, our economy is in tatters as it is. Um, I don't know, I'm not an economist, I don't know how to gauge foreign aid, um, but um, I, I don't think that in, in 
how we value these alliances um, can be done solely by um, by price tag. It's the long-term peace benefit that it brings that we don't have to invest um, our assets um, there on a continuous basis. And, and to the point that you were saying about that they were on the front lines, but they didn't have frontline stuff, I think the jets they were using were actually Dutch jets um, that Belgium. they were flying. Uh, what were they? Belgium. Belgium. They were uh, Belgium jets. Um so I see that you're saying that. So let's actually get into the story because I think we've got all the players, kind of the politics that are going on there and everything. Um, you set it up kind of great by saying they were the first ones to join the coalition, the fight in Afghanistan. So they're running these sortie missions. And, and the way you describe it in the book is that different countries are taking different times of the day. One runs sorties in the morning, one runs them in the afternoon, one runs them at night, and then there's ones that just run them constantly the one that we're talking about is on december 24th 2014 uh it was a weapon storage facility in raqqa they had decided to do a, a christmas eve uh, kind of run on this and knock out this weapon storage facility uh everything was planned out great they hadn't had that much trouble um and this is where you kind of introduce the pilots in now moaz is, is is am i saying his name correctly yeah, that's one of one of the pronunciations. Okay, so uh, he is a lieutenant that has been a pilot for a while, but he is he has chosen to be the head of this mission. Uh, he goes to Slider One One. His pilot, uh, his uh, wingman, Lieutenant Salim, is Slider One Two. They make this run. They do their fuel, um, no problems all the way there. They make their bomb run. Uh, they had not though. There was a couple things that failed with the mission. They didn't pick up any of the anti-air guns that were uh, in the area, and that kind of ended up being their downfall. Um, and we'll get into a couple more of the failures of the mission that happened. But as they're making this run, they're hit. The problem that I saw was with everything that they were doing, they were going so far in, you had pointed out in the book that they didn't have, they weren't close enough to a friendly or a locale that they could land that plane if they had to. They wanted to get a far away, of course, from the danger, but there was nowhere really close to go. And that ultimately is why he decided to ditch the plane. Um, and then uh, uh, just a, a, you know, a ton of things happened on his way to the ground. But in that first run that we're talking about, as they're making this run, are they making a difference in their minds there by these runs? Because I, I got the feeling through the entire book that they were, that they thought they were really kind of taking it to the enemy and just pounding targets over and over. That's the sense that you get with these guys talking about it. Is that the correct way to kind of look at that situation? Absolutely. They, um, they, ISIS threatened to bring Jordan to bring the region back a thousand years. And these individuals wanted to fight it um, with every ounce inside them. Um, it's th Think of it from the perspective of a young officer um, who is facing this monstrosity that's emerging, that's a, this unstoppable force where people are being beheaded um, in the street and women are being seized and raped and 
and it's become it's become a an apocalyptical apocalyptical chaotic world that's um, hours from their homes and their families. The um, the coalition coordinated the airstrikes. There was a command center um, and in Kuwait, and it controlled um, all. Everything was done via satellite remotely. Um, in hindsight, that was mistake number one, because the combat search and rescue for the sorties was also out of Kuwait. Great. That I was and, hoping you would bring that up. And the the feeling was that um, if a pilot needed to ditch, there'd be enough time to bring whoever was on call that day to execute the rescue mission. And what wasn't taken into consideration, what maybe fell by the wayside on that particular operation, was that the Marines that were on call that day um, would need four hours to get to Raqqa. And that Moaz um, Kasasbe, the pilot, didn't have four hours. He barely had four minutes. And his, his aircraft wasn't hit, according to some reports, according to some, it suffered mechanical damage. But whatever it was, he was forced to ditch. He was forced to eject. And he landed um, in hostile territory and was captured almost immediately. And the individuals who captured him were of a motley crew from the former Soviet Union, from Central Asia, from Europe, and from the Middle East that formed this ISIS army that, had, um, that was pushing across Syria. And a Western pilot would have been valuable enough, but the Jordanian pilot provided ISIS with a good opportunity to try and um, create even further chaos in the Middle East. Let's talk about this this rescue stuff for a minute, because like you said, the, the Marines at Ron Call needed four hours to get there. That was well known that they needed four hours to get there. The question that, that comes up in my mind is with all of this planning, because you mentioned that the leader of this air wing sometimes stayed overnight. He never even went to sleep. He just reviewed missions over and over and over. With, with saying that, you would think that he would look at this and know right off the bat they're four hours away. There are closer things because we had to refuel. There were places that we could not necessarily launch from, but there were places that were friendly in the area. Why would we not move a, a, a CSAR team to there? That's Did they ever come up question. with a reason? No, and it caused um, a fair amount of um, anger after the fact. The, um, the coalition was a very far-reaching coalition of many nations. And controlling and coordinating that was, even with satellites and telefeeds and video conferencing, was difficult. It was cumbersome. It was clumsy. You didn't have, you didn't have assets um, launching from the base that the mission originated from. Right. And it was piecemealing things. It was kind of like an Amazon warehouse. I hate these analogies, so forgive me. 
but you were bringing in um, pieces for one order from many different locations. And if it arrived on time, wonderful. And if it didn't, you had to complain. Well, unfortunately here, life was on the line. A, um, a pilot that had millions of dollars of training in him, um, a face of a nation, someone whose, whose captivity um, could create far greater um, issues and implications. So the coalition um, didn't quite operate in the way that maybe it should have. Um, and there was a price that was paid. And by all accounts, that pilot was really ahead of his time, ahead of the machine that he was on. They said that that he was the first one to come through that was kind of ahead of the, the machine that he was actually using, that he was... All, uh, by all means, he was kind of the top guy around there to fly. That's why he was chosen to lead this mission on Christmas Eve. When when they say that, though, and when you talk about that it's cumbersome, that it, it's very hard to run that coalition because it's so big, there had to be something, and you, you would have to tell me because it's not in the book, there had to be problems before this. This could not have been the first problem that popped up. Granted, this was on a scale that no others would really rival, but there had to be other issues where it popped up and they started replanning or readjusting to that situation. Was there anything like that before this? Not that I'm aware of, of a serious note. Um, you had many nations who were vying for a slot to go on a bombing run. Um, bombing runs required coordination, obviously air traffic control. Um, you couldn't go over certain airspaces. Um, you couldn't, um, you didn't want to create a, an environment where you also didn't have enough um, tankers up in the air. So it, it was a fairly her Herculean effort to maintain all those aircraft from many different countries where the pilots spoke different languages, operated different machinery. Um, you, know, you, you could have in one day sometimes the aircraft of 12 different air forces flying missions. I mean, this was a world war when it came to defeating ISIS. You could have, uh, in fact, one of the pictures that I found that we used in the book um, was, I mean, I have photos of the Jordanian sorties and, and the base that I visited, but you also have U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine, um, French Air Force, and there's a photo of Royal Australian Air Force aircraft bombing Mosul. I mean, this was a truly global effort, and it was an effort that required a UN um, a, a sort of ability to cross-communicate. And like anything that happens that's um, micromanaged from a distance, there were shortcomings. And coalition units wanted to be there. Like if, if you give soldiers, airmen, or sailors um, the option to be in the thick of things, commanders are going to jump at the chance. And the squadron leaders wanted their squadrons to be the ones. They wanted their aircraft to be the ones. They wanted the ones to hit good targets. They wanted to be the ones to make a significant dent in the ISIS army. With him uh, ditching the plane, uh, it, you mentioned that he's very calm in, in his uh, communications, that he's ditching the plane, that he's bailing out. Uh, but once he bails out, 
Um, he doesn't land on land. He can't get the chute to go the right direction. It pushes him into the Euphrates. Um, and it was kind of just a comedy of errors, just a perfect storm of stuff going on. He's really close to the village of uh, Al uh, Akarisha, I think is how you say yes. it. And Al Tunisi is there with his motley crew that you're saying. They see all of this happen and they head out there, like you said. It's within the first four minutes that they grab him out of the water. Now, they realize right away um, that that they have something here, that this is bigger than what they expected it to be when they get on the ground there. Um, they pull him from the water. They strip him. They beat him repeatedly uh, and then take him back uh, to a basement in Karak, uh, um, in Raqqa, and he meets with who's in charge. When this happens, I guess I'm trying to understand because his his uh, wingman flew over him for a minute and headed back. Were there messages going back and forth that, hey, he's bailed out? They knew he had bailed out because he said it over the air. Why are they not scrambling once again to get a rescue team there? Whether it's the four-hour-away Marines or just trying to scramble something from where they launched from or a little bit closer. That seemed to never happen. So where was the breakdown there? The breakdown is when you decentralize, or when you overly centralize, rather, the command control um, infrastructure. Okay. It becomes incredibly... Um, difficult to have an immediate response and these are and, and and these are realities of events that happened before in benghazi for example um that that was learned from mogadishu once the plan goes off and now there's a rescue involved you have the you have the um the opportunity to turn something terrible but localized into something far more serious with greater repercussions. And because he was seized so quickly and there were only two Jordanian aircraft up above, um, it was, I, I guess by the time a rescue could have been coordinated, um, it would have been virtually impossible to locate him without there being a full-fledged military assault on Raqqa. And then the ramifications of that, um, it would have to have been an airborne assault. Right. And, I, I get that. I guess my question is, is it almost seemed, and maybe I'm wrong in reading the book the way I took it, it almost seemed like they thought, well, he's grabbed, it's going to take too long to get there, and it kind of just went to the wayside. Like, they didn't even try and do it. I, I, am I wrong in that? Because that's the feeling I got from reading it, that they kind of looked at the situation as a whole, figured out it was a loser of a situation, and backed away from it. Well, usually, in, uh, the way normal air operations work, if they're launching from a base, um, there is a CSAR capability on call that right. could reach them quickly. Because this wasn't handled um, according to these guidelines from the get-go, doing it after the fact was virtually impossible. Because they had invested in this system, in this apparatus, um, the, you couldn't kind of turn the clock back and start over again. It was done. 
And once it was done, and once the kind of the chain of command got the got, got the gist of what was happening, it was already too late. Now so, there were efforts, there were special ops efforts to try and locate him. Absolutely. After the fact, but that immediate rescue um, was very, very, very difficult. It's also, um, you know, in, in thinking about it, the war against ISIS in Syria and in Iraq weren't wars where there were defined front lines. The village could have been um, Yazidi, the next door village could have been ISIS, the next one could have been Kurdish. And depending on the wind and where you ended up, um, even if you launched a strike against one, you might not be hitting, uh, you might be hitting friendly forces. Right. Or the, or the battle, the battle lines shifted fairly quickly. It, the, the, there needs to be at one point, um, again, decisions that, thank God, I don't have to make. Right. Um, when do you risk more for one? Um, what are the costs of, of escalation that you, as a coalition, as the Jordanian government, as an air force, as a squadron, what, what, is, what are those decisions of what you invest to try and get someone out when you don't know exactly where he is when you've missed when you've blown your window uh, yeah absolutely and and i i think that's kind of where i was going with that question was it seemed like almost an an, an afterthought to it now we we talked about the the perfect storm of everything that goes wrong as they take him they realize that he has a cell phone now he wasn't supposed to have this cell phone on him it was supposed to be in his locker he didn't have yes. time he didn't have time to get back to his locker, so he took it. He thought, I'll be back by noon, which is always, if I've ever learned anything, that's always the thing that, that leads you down the wrong path by thinking you're going to be a certain place at a certain time. He has this phone, but as they bring him down, they take the phone from him, and they realize that this phone is a treasure trove of resource for them. When this happens... Uh, they find a whole new thing. They find pictures of the base. They find pictures of family. They find pictures of other pilots, of weapon systems, of all different kinds of things in here. How important was that that they had that at that moment? Because it, it, it doesn't seem to me like they used it at that minute. They used it a little later on, but almost in a psychological warfare, not as a ground and pound tearing up a target warfare. The old Hollywood adage of name, rank, and serial number um, is hard to maintain when your cell phone reveals your name, your rank, your address, the, your fiancé, her phone number, her parents' number, um, all, every member of your squadron, their rank, and um, their Facebook posts, and their Facebook posts lead to other Facebook posts. And if you're good at what you're doing... Uh, when I say that, meaning if you're a teenager who knows social media, you can create a, an incredibly um, an incredibly detailed dossier on the inner workings of a modern fighting formation. And that's exactly what happened. It was um, it was an enormous windfall for ISIS to have all this information at their fingertips. And it made, it, it, it gave them the opportunity to turn that cell phone 
into a very potent psychological propaganda tool that they wanted to use to show the Jordanian population and using Jordan as just um, an example to show the Arab world that they could reach anyone and anything and that they knew everything and everyone and that they were a force unlike anything the Arab world had ever reckoned with. And being able to extract such information, such detailed information into a 21st century online presentation that would be beamed on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram was unbelievably powerful. And it was a damning threat to the stability of Jordan, um, King Abdullah's hold on power and the, um, the U.S.'s most reliable ally in the Arab world. Now, what was interesting to me, though, was they took all this information, like we both said they used it as a psychological weapon, but at no time did they make attacks on the information that they found in there. They didn't attack his family. They didn't go necessarily back to the base and do suicide bombing or anything like that. Do you have any idea or in the people that you've talked to uh, that are involved in this, is there any idea why they didn't act on that? Because you're right. That's a just a, a ton of information for them that they could use to make strikes. Was there any reason why they didn't do a strike? To hit the family would have, um, would have inflamed passions against them. The individuals at the base were protected inside a secure air base. But the fragile psyche of the nation was vulnerable. It was out there. So why bother? Why risk anything when you can play with the minds of six, seven million people? When you can make, um, when you can make the Americans nervous that um, this ragtag terror group that had suddenly taken over um, half of Iraq and half of Syria um, were now um, needling the Jordanians and showing what they could do. And it wasn't only the Jordanians. Um, in, ISIS produced a very slick media production with the interrogation of Maz. And they created graphics, very MTV-like graphics with um, Islamic music that showed the number of Saudi aircraft, the number of um, UAE aircraft, Moroccan aircraft, all the other Arab forces. And this made the governments in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and Rabat nervous as hell as well, because they're exposing our contribution and using it against us. They're turning this Arab pilot, they're turning this into an, a civil war almost, a psychological civil war inside the Sunni Muslim Middle East. And how far would they be able to take it? And how many minds would they be willing, uh, how many minds would they be able to transform into an underground and into recruits? And it's important to understand that ISIS recruited individuals in many, from the Arab world in many cases who weren't from the poor end and the illiterate and the undereducated. College. They attracted people with college degrees. They attracted people who could who 
who were attracted to knowledge, attracted to the slickness of the media campaign, and can be captured by these um, by these very insightful videos and snippets on social media that promoted the vulnerability of the existing Arab world. That one pilot who mistakenly and tragically took his cell phone with him on a mission um, ultimately created a Pandora's box that had um, far greater implications than merely the life of one poor um, Air Force pilot who um, ended up in the hands of a very savage enemy. Well, I think even more than that, but I think where they made the mistake was when we talk about how many people could they recruit, I, I think that that was one of the goals of it, but I think the other was to, as you talk about, was make those people in Jordan, uh, uh, UAE, all of those different places to make them so fearful of ISIS and what they could do that they would just give up and walk away from this conflict. And in turn... They did the exact opposite. They ignited, as we get into this even more, uh, a fever that they had never seen before. What do you think it was that when they think like that and they want to shut down a whole organiz uh, a whole country and a way that they're thinking and a government and the way that they're thinking, they've got to know that's that's almost a pipe dream. Because they took everything else by force. And as we talked about, this was a psychological thing. It wasn't really by force. But much of what ISIS did was psychological. When you go into a city and you execute um, um, people for no apparent reason without um, having them committed a crime, rounding them up, torturing them, right. you create fear. Fear is the psychological weapon. When you, um, when you butcher children and rape women, you're creating fear. Not in that town or village, but in the village next door. Where people aren't going to fight you, and people aren't going to stay in their homes. People are going to just abandon everything they own and run for the hills, run for their lives, run across borders. And then you acquire their homes and their wealth. And you create, you're, and you're, you're able, you're able to conquer land and seize wealth without having to fight for it, because people are running in your wake, because people are scared shitless from you, and that's what they wanted to do, and and part of their message, um, the old Steve Martin, um, uh, let's see, Martin, Billy Crystal from Saturday Night Live when he played Fernando. It's more important to look good than to feel good. Um, to ISIS, it was more important to um, to look fierce than to be fierce. I mean, they were fierce, but they they perpetrated horrific crimes that were that were filmed, and videotaped with glee, um, torture that for us is is beyond barbaric and beyond Middle Ages. And, and they did it um, in ways that were designed specifically very, very, in a very slick manner, um, in, in ways that Hollywood producers um, work very hard to achieve. 
to evoke emotion and anger and fear. And in some cases, people would rather join them than fight them. There were multiple facets to their social media blitz, to their Hollywood blitz, to their rock videos that would, could be seen and shared online. Um, and that's one of the things that made them such a potent force to contend with because they were able they were able to provide an attractive solution to many people that felt lost as a result of the war on terror immigrants in france and, and belgium and elsewhere who were poor who were marginalized for whatever reason it doesn't matter and they were able to find them a home in isis where they had money where they were given a weapon where they were given a woman, in many cases, the first of, of, for all of these people to have any of these things. And then they were, um, they were sent back, in many cases, back to their communities. And if you look at the, at the, the litany of ISIS attacks um, that occurred, most notably the ones in Paris, um, where hundreds were killed, over 100 people were killed, was this where they did uh, three separate attacks all in one day yes. or four separate attacks in one day? Yes. Okay. Um, on the Friday the 13th, 2015 um, attacks. The, um, the media, the use of social media for recruitment, for the propagation of fear, and for communication was incredibly sophisticated. And they wanted to, and, and ISIS wanted to use that sophistication to uh, create a, um, a domino effect, get Jordan out of the way, move into the Arab-Israeli um, conflict, move into Sinai where they were already um, very well entrenched, move further into Libya. I mean, they had a very clear path before them. And there were only a few nations and obstacles in their way. Can we talk about the five main conspirators with this? Um, if you would, can you uh, can you go through who they are and kind of their importance in this situation? You have to give me the names, and I'll give you the uh, okay. Abu Muhammad Al Adani. He was um, the, uh, I guess, the chief of staff, the um, the, the right hand man. Yes, of Baghdadi. So the um, to, to to create the to set up the scene of of this covert intelligence vengeance campaign on the third of February, King Abdullah is in, in Washington. He's meeting with um, congressional and Senate leaders, um, pleading his case for more aid and more support. When um, an aide interrupts his meeting with, um, I believe, Senator John McCain. And he shows him on the, on, on the cell phone the release of the um, of the video where um, Moaz had been burnt to death, and the production was very slick. He was put in a metal cage. Um, he was in fatigue, in orange prison fatigues. Um, there were all these men around with. Um, desert camouflage, um, 
khaki um, sand balaclavas and it had everything of a, um, a rock video to this to this three minute four minute um, video and without to the shock of anybody who's ever seen it um, an accelerant is poured into the cage and then it's lit and the pilot burns to death and you this is seen vividly in the snuff video that makes any civilized person sick to their stomach and then once the um once the uh, the body is smoldering um, construction vehicles crush the cage and obliterate um, his remains and it was done this way to avenge the uh, a fellow muslim from bringing fire onto the citizens of raqqa but this was can i can i stop video. you for just a second sure i, I want to point out just how horrible this was and and with the way you describe it it's horrific but in everything they did drownings beheadings the all different kinds of murder that they did setting someone on fire was not allowed according to the religion correct many things weren't allowed um it's it's easy to um, interpret the religion as you write it as, a, as you go along but what was more important to them than the religion was the message the visuals the um, the ability of one video to inflame and they took a gamble they thought that by releasing the video um, people would be so in awe of their audacity that their ranks would swell. And they didn't realize that the King of Jordan would take it um, as a as personal affront, as a personal attack, but as a clear and present danger to the country and everything that the Jordanians had spent many decades in building. And they had to do something. And if, when I say they, Jordan's security services had to do something. The details of what was happening was kept quiet from, um, from the citizens because um, this wasn't an issue with the Jordanian people. When the pilot was captured and ultimately executed, it had the reverse effect for Jordan. Jordanian citizens mobilized to support their nation. They didn't want anything to do with ISIS. They didn't want anything to do with these, these um, mentally ill individuals who took it upon themselves to um, go above and beyond the red line of barbarity. They wanted to show the, their countrymen and the world that they stood for everything that was against ISIS. But King Abdullah had to show his generals, he had to show his intelligence chiefs, and he had to show the CIA that the gloves were off and that the coalition's way of doing stuff 
couldn't rely upon satellites and um, the old way of doing things. Um, this was the time you had to call in the Bedouins. You had to call in the old way of doing things. You had to gather intelligence. And in mimicking, in some ways, the very famous Israeli hit teams um, after Munich, you had to eviscerate the organization um, by chopping off the heads of the men who um, were responsible. Now, by chopping off the heads, others would take its place. But you would also um, make the organization look up and look back instead of looking forward. And if you had them more nervous about living to fight tomorrow rather than living to fight and conquer another country, then you would weaken their overall capabilities. Sam, let's let's back up for just a minute, though. With you saying that, that he, he was showing his generals, his intelligence agency, the gloves are off. I want to talk about when he was in the United States when that happened, because the way it's written in the book and the way I understand it was he told the United States, look, the gloves are off. You can be a part of this or you can just stand by and watch us do it. But this will happen. And the reason I want to bring that up is because when we get into those Bedouins and the intelligence and everything like that, he made a very swift move uh, on his way back. He got on a plane like two hours later, headed back to Jordan and immediately started executing prisoners. Well, um, so there's a little back to that. The ISIS held Moaz as a hostage. And they had kidnapped some Japanese individuals. They wanted money. There was negotiating back and forth. Um, the Jordanians weren't about to negotiate with them. And they, um, the back and forth got testy. The UN got involved. Um, they were mediators from, from Western Europe. And a female prisoner, one of the co-conspirators of the 2005 Amman hotel bombings from Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, had been sentenced to death, but the king had not signed her, her, her death sentence. Sajida al-Washari, right? Sajida, yes. And, and it was better, it was more strategic for the Jordanians to keep her alive um, and languishing in prison rather than execute her. But the, um, the moment that the king was on the plane back to Jordan, he signed the papers and sentencing her to death. And she was executed before his aircraft touched down at Queen Aliyah International Airport. And um, the UN, um, the Red Crescent, all the negotiators, all the mediators be damned. The king was not allowed, was not about to let this organization threaten the kingdom. He wasn't about to let the rules of engagement um, let him fight with one hand tied behind his back. The Royal Jordanian Air Force embarked on immediate upswing in the number of sorties that it mounted. Um, the rules changed, but something had to be done. A message had to be sent, and again, not only to the generals and the spy chiefs, but also to the bad guys. 
the the terror chieftains, the five names on the list, lived um, from bed to bed, house to house, um, motorcade to motorcade, always trying to stay one step ahead of those who were going to kill them. When they began to disappear, their lieutenants feared that the intelligence capabilities of the good guys um, threatened them as well. And um, everybody's very happy to um, pat the suicide bomber on his back after he's on his way to paradise. But these individuals that drove in very nice cars and had money um, in various accounts throughout the Middle East didn't want to die. And the people hunting them limited their overall capabilities. Right. And, and going back to that, you're saying make a point. It wasn't just Sajida. Uh, he executed five people in total before the sun came up that day. I mean, he made yes. a strong point. And when he brings in that human intelligence to go after these five guys, like you said, they're not sleeping in the same bed every night. They're moving around. Um, and there, what was interesting to me was they put $5 million bounties, $10 million bounties, $1 million bounties, depending on where you were in kind of the fallout from that of the five. Cause I, I think in reading the book and, and kind of learning about this, I think that there was very much a pecking order of these five conspirators, uh, of, of who they wanted. Now it may not have gone in that order. But there was definitely a pecking order of who wanted to be taken out first, who needed to pay, and how much people were willing to pay uh, for that. Well, the pecking order was also based on the available intelligence and opportunity. Opportunity is always the most important element in, um, in equations such as this. What the Jordanians wanted was the ability to show ISIS that they could be infiltrated, that there wasn't a town or village or city that um, they were in where Jordanian agents um, or coalition agents weren't right there to monitor their movements and to um, project their coordinates to aircraft flying overhead with smart munitions. They wanted, they wanted ISIS to fear their shadows. And the game before the release of the video was a war of airstrikes, a war that was not so, a war that didn't hit the commanders of ISIS where they lived and where they slept. And by denying them the safe haven of shadow anonymity, the Jordanians were able to make the heads of ISIS nervous. And the intelligence that they were able to gather created a paradigm by which, a paradigm where the Jordanians became proactive in being the eyes and ears on the ground for the agency, for the Brits, for others, that a so the the mistakes that were made on the night on the, on the morning that Moaz was shot down were corrected in the intelligence campaign that was carried after his capture. 
I think you would agree too that you talked about that it was airstrikes before all this, before the gloves came off. It got very up close and personal with lots of different special forces, uh, with Delta, with SEAL Team 6, with the Turkish special forces. Uh, SAS was brought in. There were They were very much in your face knocking down targets. And I think that gives a whole new face, like you said, to that fear. With the airstrikes, it's very impersonal. It's happening. But when you have teams landing and taking care of business on the ground, it changes the entire landscape of the warfare. Yeah, and part of the campaign was that the Jordanians in the U.S. um, developed an outpost in the middle of Syria, in the desert, that they used as a forward interdiction base. And um, that became critical in choking ISIS supply routes. And the unique thing about this was, um, one of the Jordanian officers explained it to me, was if a joint Jordanian SF and um, US JSOC operation would pick up a caravan of, of Toyota pickups um, with women and children and individuals. And even if the JSOC operator spoke fluent Arabic, there were little, little tricks of the desert that the Jordanians would know if they were real Bedouin or not. They would know by what the food they carried. They would know by the slang they used. They would know by what kind of clothing they wear. They, they were wearing, how the women were sitting in relation to the men. There were many things that only someone who was born and bred in that part of the world would know. And, and that's where the Jordanians played a critical role in being the tip of the spear of the Western coalition and being able to to negotiate this very complicated weave of cultural duplicity and camouflage to get the real deal. And when these individuals, let's say the caravan yielded some prisoners, and these individuals were seized and spoken to, the Jordanians were able to get very quick real-time intelligence that peeled another layer off the onion that ultimately led to the location of one of the lieutenants who knew another lieutenant who was in an area that was inhabited by a tribe where elements of that same tribe were on the Jordanian side who could make a few phone calls, ask for help, and all of a sudden you had one of your targets um, who was sleeping in his, um, in his bunk um, with um, real-time information as a F-18 was um, proceeding toward the target to drop two 500-pound bombs on the building. That brings up two questions when you talk about those guys, because that was a very, very interesting part of the book to me. When they're doing joint operations on the ground, I want to talk about that real quick, and then I want to ask you kind of with the GID why it was never noticed before this that they were so good at what they did. But but let's first talk about the joint operations on the ground. You bring up a story in there where they're moving across. They were looking for a target. They get to this encampment. The person was gone because they always seemed to be about 30 minutes, an hour ahead of the teams that were on the ground. They said that it was just some people laying around. They said, no, we got to take a closer look. There's water that these guys would never use, uh, that the Bedouins would never use. They would never disrespect the desert like that. And they showed them. They stayed on that trail 
and ended up eventually that night catching the targets that they went after. And it was amazing to me that they had such a tracking ability to know the nuances, the ins and outs, and everything that would lead the teams ultimately uh, to all five conspirators. Now, the question that comes from that is, with them being as good as they were, because they were very good at what they did, and you pointed out in numerous times in the book, why did it take until this time for the CIA, for MI6, MI5, uh, Mossad, the Shin Bet, all those guys to kind of sit up and realize these guys are at the top of the game? Well, everyone in the region always knew that the Jordanians were um, masters at human intelligence. The, um, they've been dealing with nations in the area for a very, very long time. Um, the Jordanians were, were played a crucial role in the first Gulf War. I'm sorry, the, uh, in, in the second Gulf War um, in 2003 in Iraq, as serving as um, the intelligence eyes and ears of much of the coalition as they moved in and out of Baghdad and beyond. The, the marshalling of resources for a campaign sometimes happens only after a wake-up call. When people um, realize, lo and behold, we have to get our shit together. Now, intelligence always comes from a myriad of sources. You have um, on the border with Syria and Jordan, for example, you had the agency working, you had the Brits working. You had everybody who had an embassy in Jordan out of their station coming and kind of gleaning sources. And the information was kind of fractured. It was coming in from many sources. It was um, on a need-to-know basis. Not all of it was shared. There, was, there wasn't the dire urgency that existed, even though the campaign against ISIS was incredibly important and timely. Once the um, Jordanians said that we're going to go it alone, we're going to do whatever we need to do, we're going to, if we need to, send forces into Syria, risking the escalation of a much larger conflict, unless we all kind of get our eggs in, in, in a basket and act as a team. And that acting as a team required that the Jordanians take a much greater central role in leading the intelligence campaign. They didn't do it alone. Uh, the CIA and others played vital roles in, in, in executing this. But you needed, you needed information on, you needed information that would be processed to the targeting sources that was not solely electronic, satellite, or purchased with, with, with cash. Because once you, but once, once you accept the price, once you accept agency money, you've established the price that you can be bought at. So if the CIA is going to buy you for a million bucks, ISIS can buy you for a million dollars and 50 cents. So loyalty is, money doesn't buy loyalty. Money buys whatever it buys for that specific time. And what the tribal connections especially as it, as it went through Iraq, um, provided great reliability in the information. You could trust the source because if the source was incorrect, if the source was misleading you, 
that would bring great dishonor on that tribe. And that dishonor could never have been could never be corrected, no matter how much money would be later thrown at it. Also, because the border with Jordan and Syria had always been porous, had always been a smuggling haven, um, there were superhighways that existed um, for individuals and intelligence agents that, when properly used, um, provided ease of access between the two nations, and it provided a flow of human intelligence. Now, human intelligence isn't perfect, but when you have very reliable human intelligence with the best of technology that an agency like the CIA can bring, and you have the, the need, the political, the um, strategic need to bring these bastards to justice, and you combine all of them, you have a successful campaign against a very potent terrorist army and um, this was the, ver the beginning of the end of the military campaign against ISIS. And ISIS never recovered from, uh, from that miscalculation when they decided to not only um, not treat their POW with respect as the Quran dictates, but to execute him in such a horrific way and try and set the Middle East on fire and ultimately um, lead to their own demise. In saying that, let's kind of get to the final point of everything that, that kind of summed up the book for me. During Operation Guillotine, there were kill lists that were made, and those kill lists got filled. They, they got the job done. They did what they were supposed to do. They got the people. What was interesting to me, though, was after these kill lists are established, everything is taken care of with these kill lists. The people on the kill list are, are knocked off there's still terrorist incidents that happen right after that. And we talked about uh, some of them with the multiple attacks in France and things. The mind state, and you've been doing this for your entire adult life learning about this. So this is more of a mind state question for me that I'm trying to understand. With ISIS being taken down, with the ferocity that the world showed them after this happened, what is going through these guys' mind to push another attack? Because that's exactly what they were trying to do in France when they hit multiple targets in one day. Uh, they're trying to go back to that. They have to know that something's... No one is just going to stand around for that. So if you can speak a little bit to the mindset. Part of how you conquer a region is by making your um, by force multiplying and by giving the illusion that you're an army that has battalions in france and in germany and in italy and in morocco and tunisia and elsewhere by perpetrating these attacks you send that message however the more territory that isis lost the uh, more attacks that happened where individuals and their cell phones and computers were seized, the greater intelligence was, was gathered on these individuals, on the jihadists. The, the less territory that ISIS had, the less money it had, the more it was focused on survival rather than expansion. The, the greater... Um, greater resources had to be spent 
on making it to tomorrow rather than planning out tomorrow's attack. Individuals became disillusioned. Nobody wants to join a losing side. The caliphate had shrunk um, by 50-fold. Um, what was the point? Governments were now going after foreign nationals who went to fight in, in Syria and Iraq. They were facing life in prison. They were losing their citizenship. The, once, the, once the revolution um, hit a wall, once it, once it was met with firepower, once it was met with um, covert capability and, and cutthroat tactics that the Jordanians used um, and the others, um, ISIS kind of went back into a shell. Most of its operators were dead. Um, its territory lost. Um, it, it was a loser. The um, crimes that it committed became public. The Arab governments um, put on a campaign that um, to try and educate its their people of their evils, of this crazy form of fundamentalism, and in Syria specifically, um, the civil war where ISIS was able to flourish against the the regime in power in Damascus now became a true superpower conflict with the Soviet, with the, the Russians now committing full-fledged military might, the Iranians committing full-fledged military might to defeat ISIS. I mean, if you think about it, ISIS was so bad that the U.S., Iran, and Russia fought on the same side. I would bring up, yeah, I, I, I you know, in getting to that point, I believe, though, that Russia kind of had their own plans for that. Uh, I think that there might have been some uh, ulterior motives that were on that. I think that they um, wanted to open up maybe the expanse a little bit. But you're exactly right that when you see, you know, uncommon partners together, something is really bad. With that, though, when you say that about prison and that they had been mostly defeated, Weren't they facing that kind of when they started this whole thing, too? I mean, it was because of the, the I don't even know what you would call it, but letting them out of the prison, saying they were reformed, because that happened a couple times in the book where they were letting people out that, that should have never breathed free air again in prison. Weren't they kind of facing all that? And in yeah, saying that, can't we? A lot of them broke out of prison and when, they were, when they were created. Um, the truth is that we don't really know. We governments don't know what to do with these people. That's what I was about so, to ask. Will this happen again over and over? Because it's just, it's the same circle over and over with the set of standards, with the way they live, with the ideology that goes behind it. Does this ever go away? That's a question for people much smarter than I am. Um, I don't know if it ever goes away in a bizarre sort of thinking. The pandemic um, slowed it down. Okay. It's, it's very hard. It's very hard to try and conquer the Middle East when you're in quarantine and um, you're social distancing. Um, <laughs> no one knows. Um, no one knows how the Middle East will go which is why people are always nervous about anything that happens 
from the um, you know from Afghanistan all the way to Morocco and the the Atlantic coast. The area is so volatile. One incident, one. I mean, think of in in the history of conflict of the region, modern history, the last twenty years, of how many catastrophic terrorist attacks occurred. The burning of a pilot um, had the ability to create a a war that ranged from Iraq all the way to Morocco, with Arab states fighting other Arab states in Arab states, um, to to stop and a fundamentalist Islamic force that the world did not know how far they would go. And the Middle East is, is a region where one, one incident, one tragedy can spiral beyond anyone's control. And I think one of the things, kind of shifting gears, that, um, that ultimately led to the Abraham Accord, the peace between Israel and the Gulf Arabs, was the fact that the notion that Iran all of a sudden might emerge scared the Arabs um, into the fear that the stability that they know and that they could live with could one day become an instability that could threaten them forever. And it seems crazy that that you would use the word stability, that the stability that you know, so you kind of, you know, put a preface onto that. Is there anybody in all your research, in everything that you've done, you're a Middle Eastern expert. Is there anybody that you see rising up right now that you think is trouble in the future? I think that there is enormous economic problems in the Arab world. Lebanon is on the verge of being a failed state. Um, one of the reasons why they've become a failed state is because Iran has turned them into a proxy terror hub for Hezbollah, the group that before 9-11 killed more Americans than any other terror group in the world. With Iranian help and money, Hezbollah has developed a, missile, a ballistic missile arsenal that rivals those in NATO. And if Iran feels threatened, they could instruct Hezbollah to launch 10,000 missiles in Israel, which will ultimately start a Middle Eastern war that could escalate, again, beyond anyone's notion. The Chinese have become very interested in the Middle East and are, um, are present in rebuilding Lebanon. They're in Syria, and they're eager to, to lay their claim to their piece of the prize. Turkey, which allowed a Turkey, a NATO ally run by an Islamic dictator, was instrumental in allowing all the foreign fighters to enter Iraq and Syria and fight on behalf of ISIS. The current um, dictator in, in Ankara, um, Erdogan, is eager to return Turkey to the old glory of the Ottoman Empire. Russia is always looking to restore the alliances in the Arab world that existed during the days of the Soviet Union. The, um, the United States has withdrawn somewhat um, from the Middle East, first Obama, then Trump, um, even Biden. 
the um, the stomach in the West for conflict, um, for Middle East for Middle East forever wars is gone. So uh, the region is in peril. The region is always in peril, and sometimes bloodshed, if it kind of can be contained, is considered stable. The kind that could explode into religious fervor and completely dissolve boundaries, um, dethrone um, regimes, and, and create absolute chaos where there's no way to put the toothpaste back in the tube is what scares um, most sane um, heads of state and should worry us as well. One final question about the Middle East. Is Israel right now is it the, should it be the most scared right now? And what I mean by scared, I don't mean as a country be scared, but it seems like everyone wants to come after Israel. I mean, with the Iron Dome and everything and the constant, that that was just in recent news. Um, is, is that the country that we should be looking at to help protect? I think the Saudi, no, I think that the Israelis have proven that they can protect themselves. Um, I think that the, the, the real worry is um, what happens to the, um, to the linchpins of our Middle Eastern policy for many years, the Saudis and the Gulf Arabs, when the oil runs out, or the oil because of, um, of, of new energy sources um, loses a lot of its value. Um, a lot of these regimes have invested money in their Swiss bank accounts and yachts, and not in, in their own people. Infrastructure. And infrastructure. Um, a, lot of it, a lot of their infrastructure is run by people who don't live in the country, or who aren't from there. Um, I think that um, what happens in those countries, the, the risk that the Saudis and the Gulf Arabs, the Qataris or whoever, can be manipulated um, or um, forced for their own um, lack of insight to implode um, is a great concern. I, Israel, Israel is a target. Israel is a convenient for all the anti-Semitic reasons and for the reasons that it's a Western country in the Middle East. Um, it will always be a target, but Israel isn't going anywhere. And Israel is more than capable of defending itself. And it has an incredibly strong high-tech economy. Um, the other countries where there are people who are unemployed, um, overeducated, underemployed, and in countries that could soon find themselves um, 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 eating rations off of um, gold-plated cups um, are the ones that really um, long-term cause concern. So what's next for you, Sam? Doing what I um, continue to do, try and make sense out of things that happened um, so that maybe um, moving forward we can be a little smarter and avoid repeating mistakes that cost um, good people their lives. You have any books in the works? Do you have anything, any projects that, that you're really looking forward to kind of focus in on coming up? Um, I am do, working on a couple of books, and I am doing um, some some help for NGOs. But I started something that's it's not quite off the ground. But um, we do have a Twitter 
account. Um, it's called Special Ops Media, and I've joined forces with um, one of Israel's top combat photographers. And we provide uh, media services for the types of units that can't go to Madison Avenue to get promotional work that they need to present for governments or internally. Um, it's specops underscore media at Twitter just to see what we started. And um, you can contact us through there. Great. Well, this was another, of course, with all your writing, this was another fantastic book. People really need to check it out. Um, when I had talked to people that I work with, a lot of people surprisingly knew about this story. Uh, a couple had even said, yeah, they had seen the video and it was one of the worst videos that they'd ever seen. And, and in the line of work we're in, we've seen some pretty bad things. So for someone to say it was one of the worst things they've ever seen, uh, that's a, that's a pretty telling sign, but absolutely fantastic book, tons of information, no shadows in the desert, murder, vengeance, and espionage in the war against ISIS. You can find it on Amazon. It's in Kindle form. It's in hardback form, softback form. Uh, you can get it there. You can also get it at Samuel Katz online. That's S A M U E L K A T Z online.com. Uh, you can also pick it up there and his other books there. You can also learn more about him, his bio, his history, and things that he's doing uh, with the new Twitter account. If you want to give that one more time, Sam. Yeah, it's specops underscore media. Okay, and, and that's uh, on Twitter. That's on Twitter if they want to contact us. Um, our website is getting up, but um, we've done some work for various government units. Um, I, I, we, we can share some of the things. Um, these are um, writing and uh, illustrated work that um, top tier units need um, to recruit um, and also to um, to interact with others. So um, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. I'm quite proud of it. And there should be a few more books um, coming in the months to come. Great. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know so you can let your, your, your followers know as well. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for that. So, guys, you got to check out this book, No Shadows in the Desert, Murder, Vengeance, and Espionage and the War Against ISIS. It's a fantastic story. Sam has once again written a great book. You can go on Amazon to pick it up. You can go on to SamuelKatzOnline.com. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. You can get a look at the cover art for the book, see what Sam looks like, look at all the books that he's written behind him in this. And that's at the DTD podcast. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. Please go check out this book, No Shadows in the desert you can pick it up in a multitude of places that's going to be it for the show tonight guys that's sam i'm dj this has been the show we'll catch you guys on the next one see you later bye <laughs>